Agnes Mary Clerk by Margaret Lindsay Huggins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Agnes Mary Clerk was born on February 10th, 1842, at Skibbereen, a small country town in a remote part of the county Cork. Her father was John William Kirk, and her mother was a sister of the late Lord Justice Deasy. Constitutionally delicate, Agnes Clerk from her earliest years, as so often is to be noticed in cases of frail health, found her chief delight in literary study and in music. From quiet talks often enjoyed with her in her later life, it was clear that her thoughtfulness and her liking for probing difficult problems must have developed early. In 1861, the Clerk family moved to Dublin, and in 1863, to Queenstown. The winters of 1867 and of 1868 were spent at Rome, that of 1871 at Naples, and the next five winters at Florence, the summers of 1874 to 76, being passed at the Barnia de Luca. The sisters, Agnes and Ellen, both profited from this sojourn in Italy as their subsequent writings show. But Agnes at Florence worked specially hard, reading constantly in the public library there, and always, I believe, with one great object before her. It is a question of much interest to examine into the early leanings and aspirations of those who distinguished themselves later, and Agnes Clerk early determined her life work. Before leaving Skibbereen, at about the age of 15, she had clearly before her the intention of writing a history of astronomy, and it is thought had actually written a few chapters. Her first article in the Edinburgh Review is in harmony with the above facts. Agnes Clarke's literary life may be said to have begun in 1877 with the acceptance of her article Copernicus in Italy by Henry Reeve, then editor of the Edinburgh Review, who recognised the value of his new contributor and kept her at work. The number of her contributions to the Edinburgh is 55, and they are all of the highest order. Agnes Clerk, with her family, returned to England in 1877 and settled in London. With the publication of the History of Astronomy in 1885 may be said to have begun her astronomical life. She read systematically and cultivated personal relations with a wide circle of astronomical workers, in person or by correspondence. I consider that these relations had much to do with the success of her work. Her sympathies were so keen, her interest so warm, her longing for further truth so intense that everyone liked to offer her all he could. In 1890 appeared her second book, The System of the Stars. The progress of science and the growth of its literature during the last quarter of a century have been so enormous that a new order of worker is imperatively called for and Agnes Clarke was an admirable example of such a worker, devoting her life to astronomy, which is at once the oldest and, in its new developments, the youngest of the sciences. 
the science which poncare has lately so eloquently declared to have given the conception of law to all others the mission of these special workers is to collect collate correlate and digest the mass of observations and papers to chronicle in short on one hand and on the other to discuss and suggest and to expound that is to prepare material for experts to inform and interest the general public there is an urgent need of a better educated public opinion in this country that such a mission may be a splendid and fruitful one has been shown by agnes clerk what careful preparation it requires and how much it demands of those who would enter upon it her career also shows the immense increase in astronomical literature is hardly realized except by those engaged in dealing with it to give but one instance the annual index of astronomical literature for 1905 published under the auspices of the astronomischgesellschaft contains over two thousand references collated from three hundred separate publications the strain of such work as i am indicating is great indeed involving as it should the power of holding loose in the mind so to speak an immense mass of facts and also a power of rapidly associating or dissociating them as work and discovery may suggest in one of her latest works modern cosmogonies agnes clerk herself dwelt upon this strain year by year she says page 160 details accumulate and the strain of keeping them under mental command becomes heavier pathetic words written almost in blood for not long before had been published her last large work problems in astrophysics a work she feared she could not live to complete a work which she was able to toil at for only half an hour at a time all through her life agnes clerk was a student lectures and friday evening discourses at the royal institution which bore upon her work she was careful to attend a three months visit to sir david and lady gill at the cape in eighteen eighty eight gave her some observatory opportunities which increased her power of clearly realizing the records of observatory and laboratory work she was awarded by the royal institution in eighteen ninety two the actonian prize of one hundred guineas for her works on astronomy and in nineteen o three she received the distinction of being elected an honorary member of the royal astronomical society an honour and title held previously only by mrs somerville caroline herschel and anne sheepshanks a frequent attendant at the meetings of both the royal astronomical society and the british astronomical association she was always an interested one occasionally she spoke but she had no liking for speaking in public nor indeed was she well suited for it a complete list of agnes clerk's papers it would be difficult to compile they were in truth innumerable her articles on astronomers for the dictionary of national biography articles for the encyclopaedia britannica and for other encyclopaedias were many and all of them were models of painstaking inquiry and of clear concise statement the more important of these are of lasting interest and value her larger works are history of astronomy in the nineteenth century four editions 
the system of the stars two editions familiar studies in homer the herschels and modern astronomy concise history of astronomy modern cosmogonies problems in astrophysics i venture to think that the history of astronomy in the 19th century is the most important of her works it is admirable in its completeness of references its wide inclusiveness and in its lucidity it deserves to live and assuredly will live the invaluable continuation of grant's fine work the systems of the stars and the problems in astrophysics are works of a different order treasuries of knowledge and of suggestion they certainly are the homeric studies except in one chapter are not specially astronomical but they are evidence of a breadth of culture and of wide intellectual interest and are full of delightful touches of wit and of humour it seems to me a mistake to regard agnes clerk's smaller works as of less importance than her larger ones i have said that i consider the history her greatest work but in some respects i venture to think that her greatest achievement is modern cosmogonies i claim for this book that it is not only a history but a work of philosophical thinking and of imaginative insight of a very high order its small size is an accident it is a work essentially great in these brilliant sketches agnes clerk's style is at its best but the writing in modern cosmogonies good as it is is a small matter compared with the masterly grasp of i may say all things and of their interrelations which the work reveals and where else is shown in recent philosophical writing such vision and faculty divine for seizing and pointing out the reasonable spiritual clues set in what we call nature clues helping us to sustainment of soul in the midst of the majestic mystery surrounding us no sketch of agnes clerk would be complete without reference to her love of music to her music was in the highest sense of the term a recreation she turned to it for very life her piano playing was truly musicianly and her repertory was large perhaps her playing was at its best in rendering chopin as an accompanist she excelled her teachers were in dublin miss flynn in florence buamici remarkable as were the intellectual powers of agnes clerk her moral endowments were equally so it was a question we frequently debated the influence of character on work and as i write the memory of certain talks is hauntingly present as is the heart is the work the best work is and must be associated with lofty character it was so with agnes clerk no purer loftier and yet more sweetly unselfish and human soul has lived she was so incapable of meanness that she even incurred danger as a historian in crediting too readily all workers with her own high ideals as a friend and companion she was faithful and true and full of charm and without her the world to those who had her friendship seems darkened and empty but her mission i believe has been fulfilled 
For 20 years she has been to modern astronomy an admirable historian and has kept before working astronomers clear charts, so to speak, of what was being done and of what should and might be done. In so doing she rendered splendid service and inaugurated a kind of work which must be more and more needed, a kind of work which not only advances astronomy but promotes a universal brotherhood and cooperation, golden indeed. Agnes Clerke's death comes as a shock to many, a cold, I fear not sufficiently nursed at first, led to pneumonia and complications, and, in spite of all that devoted love and skill could do, she passed gently to the next life, peaceful and fully conscious almost to the last, on the morning of January 20th, 1907. End of Agnes Mary Clerke by Margaret Lindsay Huggins Read by Melanie T. Immanuel Kant and John George Hamann from the Life of Immanuel Kant by John Henry Wilbrandt Stukenberg, eighteen thirty five to nineteen hundred and three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Among the literary men in Konigsberg with whom Kant associated, John George Hamann was by far the most eminent. Our interest in him is the greater because we are indebted to him for many important hints respecting the philosopher and his labors. The rank assigned to him in literature is indicated by an article which appeared in 1853 in a journal published in Konigsberg, where both he and Kant were born and where they lived and died. It speaks of Hamann's fame as promising to surpass that of the critical philosopher, although during their lives Kant was famous and the magician of the North, as Hamann was called, was obscure and neglected. Verily, while Kant's activity almost lies closed behind us, the present judges otherwise respecting the magician of the North, who is now honored as one of the greatest and deepest thinkers of the last century. But since this was written, the revival of interest in Kant has again exalted him, and has opened a new and important activity for his philosophy, and promises for it great things in the future. And there can be no question that in intellectual greatness, especially in speculation, he was far superior to his literary friend. Hamann is, however, now receiving some of the merited recognition which his own age refused him and his words have a prophetic ring. Quote, One easily overcomes the double grief of being misunderstood and therefore abused by his own age by cherishing confidence in the abilities of a better coming generation. End quote. Amin was six years Kant's junior and died sixteen years earlier than the philosopher. Having completed his studies in his native city, he became a family tutor, and afterwards went to london on business for a firm in riga but was wholly unsuccessful becoming dissipated he spent money entrusted to him by the firm and became indebted to them to the amount of three hundred pounds sterling when on the verge of despair he read the bible and professed to have been converted Quote, 
by means of a descent to the hell of a knowledge of self end quote he wrote an autobiographical sketch of his experience in london giving a minute account of his career in that city and presented it to one of his employers in riga at the same time asking for the hand of his sister in marriage the man was shocked by the perusal of this confession and as its author still continued the course of idleness into which he had fallen his request was refused the sketch created such aversion to him that the firm felt inclined to have him imprisoned for having wasted their money after visiting riga hamann went to konigsberg and mr behrens a member of the firm also went to that city this gentleman became intimate with kant and the two tried to rescue hamann from the gloom which had settled upon him and to induce him to work and form regular habits of industry not only was he melancholy and shiftless idle and restless but he also insisted on continuing in his idleness and on letting his mind brood or revel as it pleased their efforts to induce him to change his mode of life incensed him and to lead them to desist he wrote his socratic memorabilia in which kant and behrens are represented as sustaining to him the relation of alcibiades to socrates in this little book he claims that he must go his own way guided by the word in his heart which is the light of the gospel hamann warmly defends himself and it is evident that on account of his religion he regards himself as superior to kant whom he does not think devout enough when this book appeared kant was thirty-five years old and had been a tutor in the university for four years lindner a mutual friend in riga interposed to restore harmony the firm forgave the debt and in spite of hamann's passionate words in his book he and kant remained on friendly terms in some respects they were antipodes the metaphysician was cold logical systematic and severely regular hamann was passionate and imaginative a creature of moods and impulses kant made reason the rule of his life and the source of his philosophy hamann found the source of both in his heart while kant dreaded enthusiasm in religion and suspected in it superstition and fanaticism hamann revelled in enthusiasm and he believed in revelation miracles and worship differing also in these points from the philosopher in some respects they complemented each other but the repelling elements were too strong to make them fully sympathetic the difference in their standpoints however makes hamann's views of kant all the more interesting in the course of time hamann secured employment as a secretary in the government office but business was irksome to him and literature largely absorbed his attention following the bent of his own mind while at the university he had spent his time there chiefly in studying the humanities instead of preparing for the ministry as his father desired or of studying law though inscribed as a juridical student after settling down in konigsberg he devoted himself to theology philosophy ancient literature oriental languages and desultory reading he was a voracious reader the ancient classics the english authors being among his favorites his mind was receptive and creative and was easily aroused his imagination was vivid his heart passionate 
while not the man to treat a subject exhaustively or systematically he was original and had genius gifted with a keen prophetic insight and remarkable intuition his writings are peculiar rich in apophagems dark sayings and riddles his style is his own and the sententiousness the real profundity and the peculiar use of figures and symbols make his books obscure and there are passages which he himself did not understand some time after they were written but from the dark clouds lightning flashes give as it were revelations of nature the heart and divine things uniting in himself so much that is poetical romantic wild and weird he well deserved the regard of kant the high esteem in which goethe and other literary men held him and the name by which he is known in german literature the magician of the north Hamann, who frequently met kant had a profound admiration for his intellect and appreciated the excellence of his heart but he was not blind to his faults and never became an advocate of his philosophy kant aided him in various ways and permitted his son to hear his lectures without compensation Hamann recognized his indebtedness and was so anxious not to offend his benefactor that he hesitated to criticize his books as severely as he thought they deserved he wrote to herder quote, through kindness to my son kant has put me under obligation to him so that i desire as much as you to avoid all unpleasantness aside from the old adam in his books he is really obliging unselfish and at heart a good and noble-minded man of talent and merit they frequently discussed literary subjects both were more eager to talk than to listen and as their differences were very marked their disputes at time became quite warm both however loved the truth and were sincere in their inquiries and each respected the views of the other soon after the troubles with the firm in riga kant and Hamann, who had both been family tutors planned to write a book for children on physics Hamann was no doubt better suited for such a task than kant being better able to enter into sympathy with children for some reason the philosopher dropped the matter and Hamann, with considerable passion and in an imperious tone wrote to him to reprove him for abandoning the project he admits his learning and recognizes him as a philosopher but charges him with vanity and a lack of candor probably hinting that if kant aided in writing such a book as that contemplated he would accomplish something more useful than he had yet done he says quote, it is easy to preach to scholars as it is to cheat honest people nor is it a dangerous or responsible work because most of them are already so perverted that a venturesome author cannot any more confuse their mode of thinking even the blind heathen has regard for children and a baptized philosopher ought to know that in order to write for children more is required than the wit of fontanelli in a coquettish style one would injure children by that which petrifies beautiful spirits and inspires beautiful marble End quote evidently regarding the philosopher as too far removed from the simple nature of children to adapt himself to their needs he warns him that he who would write for them must have a knowledge of children such as neither the gallant nor the academic world can give 
this was said when kant was as brilliant in society as in the lecture room Hamann's severity is seen in the following quote, the spirit of our book must be moral but if we ourselves are not moral how can we impart a moral spirit to our books and communicate it to our readers we should obtrude ourselves as blind leaders of the blind obtrude ourselves i say without a calling and without necessity this is probably merely a hint that kant was not frank towards hamann in this matter kant did not reply to these insinuations and appeals and the project of writing the book of which the philosopher seemed to think little while hamann regarded it as very important was dropped their temperaments and standpoints made such conflicts unavoidable the impulsive unreserved magician could not put himself in the place of the self-possessed critical philosopher if hamann was one-sided was kant less so were not the qualities which had been excessively developed by the one the very thing which the other had neglected in later years hamann dealt less passionately with his eminent friend and frequently speaks of him with great praise he indeed thought that the remarkable fame of the thinker had made him somewhat vain but for this he blamed him less than the public once he exclaimed quote, how long was this great man obliged to be a tutor in the university how miserable was his condition as a student but with what modesty he afterwards enjoyed his great triumphs his conflicting views of kant must be ascribed largely to the changes in his own variable moods end of immanuel kant and john george hamann from the life of immanuel kant by john henry wilbrandt stukenberg 1835 to 1903Joe Lahaina by Charles Warren Stoddard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Perard. Joe of Lahaina by Charles Warren Stoddard. Part 1. I was stormed in at Lahaina. Now, Lahaina is a little slice of civilization beached on the shore of barbarism. One can easily stand that little of it, for brown and brawny heathendom becomes more wonderful and captivating by contrast. So I was glad of dear, drowsy little Lahaina, and was glad also that she had but one broad street, which possibly led to destruction, and yet looked lovely in the distance. It didn't matter to me that the one broad street had but one side to it, for the sea lapped over the sloping sands on its lower edge, and the sun used to set right in the face of every solitary citizen of Lahaina, just as he went to supper. I was waiting to catch a passage in a passing schooner, and that's why I came there. But the schooner flashed by us in a great gale from the south, and so I was stormed in indefinitely. It was Holy Week, and I concluded to go to housekeeping because it would be so nice to have my frugal meals in private, to go to Mass and Vespers daily, 
and then to come back and feel quite at home my villa was suburban built of dried grasses on the model of a haystack dug out in the middle with doors and windows let into the four sides thereof it was planted in the midst of a vineyard with avenues stretching in all directions under a network of stems and tendrils her breath is sweeter than the sweet winds that breathe over the grape blossoms of lahaina so the song said and i began to think upon the surpassing sweetness of that breath as i inhaled the sweet winds of lahaina while the wilderness of its vineyards blossomed like the rose i used to sit in my veranda and turn to joe joe was my private and confidential servant and i would say to joe while we scented the odour of grape and saw the great banana leaves waving their cambric sails and heard the sea moaning in the melancholy distance i would say to him joe housekeeping is good fun isn't it whereupon joe would utter a sort of unanimous yes with his whole body and soul so that question was carried triumphantly and we would relapse into a comfortable silence while the voices of the wily singers down on the city front would whisper to us and cause us to wonder what they could possibly be doing at that moment in the broad way that led to destruction then we would take a drink of cocoa milk and finish our bananas and go to bed because we had nothing else to do this is the way that we began our cooperative housekeeping one night when there was a riotous sort of a festival off in a retired valley i saw in the excited throng of natives who were going mad over their national dance a young face that seemed to embody a whole tropical romance on another night when a lot of us were bathing in the moonlight i saw a figure so fresh and joyous that i began to realize how the old greeks could worship mere physical beauty and forget its higher forms then i discovered that face on this body a rare enough combination and the whole constituted joe a young scapegrace who was schooling at lahaina under the eye not a very sharp one of his uncle when i got stormed in and resolved on housekeeping for a season i took joe bribing his uncle to keep the peace which he promised to do provided i gave bonds for joe's irreproachable conduct while with me i willingly gave bonds verbal ones for this was just what i wanted of joe namely to instill into his youthful mind those counsels which if rigorously followed must result in his becoming a true and unterrified american this compact settled joe took up his bed a roll of mats and down we marched to my villa and began housekeeping in good earnest we soon got settled and began to enjoy life though we were not without occasional domestic infelicities for instance joe would wake up in the middle of the night declaring to me that it was morning and thereupon insist upon sweeping out at once and in the most vigorous manner having filled the air with dust he would rush off to the baker's for our hot rolls and a pat of breakfast butter leaving me meantime to recover as i might having settled myself for a comfortable hour's reading bolstered up in a luxurious fashion joe would enter with breakfast and orders to the effect that it be eaten at once and without delay it was useless for me to remonstrate with him he was tyrannical 
he involved me in all manner of difficulties it was holy week and i had resolved upon going to mass and vespers daily i went the soft night winds floated in through the latticed windows of the chapel and made the candles flicker upon the altar the little throng of natives bowed in the impressive silence and were deeply moved it was rest for the soul to be there yet in the midst of it while the father with his pale sad face gave his instructions to which we listened as attentively as possible for there was something in his manner and his voice that made us better creatures while we listened in the midst of it i heard a shrill little whistle a sort of chirp that i knew perfectly well it was joe sitting on a cocoa stump in the garden adjoining and beseeching me to come out right off when service was over i remonstrated with him for his irreverence joe i said if you have no respect for religion yourself respect those who are more fortunate than you but joe was dressed in his best and quite wild at the entrancing loveliness of the night let's walk a little said joe covered with fragrant wreaths and redolent of coconut oil what could i do if i had tried to do anything to the contrary he might have taken me and thrown me away somewhere into a well or a jungle and then i could no longer hope to touch the cord of remorse which cord i sought vainly and which i have since concluded was not in joe's physical preparation at all so we walked a little in vain i strove to break joe of the shocking habit of whistling me out at vespers he would persist in doing it moreover during the day he would collect crusts of bread and banana skins station himself in the ambush behind the curtain of the window next the lane and as some solitary creature strode solemnly past joe would discharge a volley of ammunition over him and then laugh immoderately at his indignation and surprise joe was my pet elephant and i was obliged to play with him very cautiously one morning he disappeared i was without the consolations of a breakfast even i made my toilet went to my portmanteau for my purse for i had decided upon a visit to the baker when lo part of my slender means had mysteriously disappeared joe was gone and the money also all day i thought about it in the morning after a very long and miserable night i woke up and when i opened my eyes there in the doorway stood joe in a brand-new suit of clothes including boots and hat he was gorgeous beyond description and seemed overjoyed to see me and as merry as though nothing unusual had happened i was quite startled at this apparition joseph i said in my severest tones and then turned over and looked away from him joe evaded the subject in the most delicate manner and was never so interesting as at that moment he sang his specialties and played clumsily upon his bamboo flute to soothe me i suppose and wanted me to eat a whole flat pie which he had brought home as a peace-offering buttoned tightly under his jacket i saw i must strike at once if i struck at all so i said joe what on earth did you do with that money joe said he had replenished his wardrobe and bought the flat pie especially for me joseph i said with great dignity 
do you know that you have been stealing and that it is highly sinful to steal and may result in something unpleasant in the world to come joe said yes pleasantly though i hardly think he meant it and then he added mildly that he couldn't lie which was a glaring falsehood but wanted me to be sure that he took the money and so had come back to tell me joseph i said you remind me of our noble washington and to my amazement joe was mortified he didn't of course know who washington was but he suspected that i was ridiculing him he came to the bed and haughtily insisted upon my taking the little change he had received from his customers but i implored him to keep it as i had no use at all for it and as i assured him i much preferred hearing it jingle in his pocket the next day i sailed out of lahaina and joe came to the beach with his new trousers tucked into his new boots while he waved his new hat violently in a final adieu much to the envy and admiration of a score of hatless urchins who looked upon joe as the glass of fashion and but little lower than the angels when i entered the boat to set sail a tear stood in joe's bright eye and i think he was really sorry to part with me and i don't wonder at it because our housekeeping experiences were new to him and i may add not unprofitable part two some months of mellow and beautiful weather found me wandering here and there among the islands when the gales came on again and i was driven about homeless and sometimes friendless until by and by i heard of an opportunity to visit molokai an island seldom visited by the tourists where perhaps i could get a close view of a singularly sad and interesting colony of lepers the whole island is green but lonely as you ride over its excellent turnpike you see the ruins of a nation that is passing like a shadow out of sight deserted garden patches crumbling walls and roofs tumbled into the one state chamber of the house while knots of long grass wave at half-mast in the chinks and crannies a land of great traditions of magic and witchcraft and spirits a fertile and fragrant solitude how i enjoyed it and yet how it was all telling upon me in its own way one cannot help feeling sad there for he seems to be living and moving in a long reverie out of which he dreads to awaken to a less pathetic life i rode a day or two among the solemn and reproachful ruins with inexpressible complacence and having finally climbed a series of verdant and downy hills and ridden for twenty minutes in a brisk shower came suddenly upon the brink of a great precipice three thousand feet in the air my horse instinctively braced himself and i nervously jerked the bridle square up to my breastbone as i found we were poised between heaven and earth upon a trembling pinnacle of rock a broad peninsula was stretched below me covered with grassy hills here and there clusters of brown huts were visible and to the right the white dots of houses to which i was hastening for that was the leper village to that spot were the wandering and afflicted tribes brought home to die once descending the narrow stairs in the cliff under me 
never again could they hope to strike their tents and resume their pilgrimage for the curse was on them and necessity had narrowed down their sphere of action to this compass a solitary slope between sea and land with the invisible sentinels of fear and fate forever watching its borders i seemed to be looking into a fiery furnace wherein walked the living bodies of those whom death had already set his seat upon what a mockery it seemed to be climbing down that crag through wreaths of vine and under leafy cataracts breaking into a foam of blossoms a thousand feet below me swinging aside the hanging parasites that obstructed the narrow way entering the valley of death and the very mouth of hell by these floral avenues a brisk ride of a couple of miles across the breadth of the peninsula brought me to the gate of the keeper of the settlement and there i dismounted and hastened into the house to be rid of the curious crowd that had gathered to receive me the little cottage was very comfortable my host and hostess friends of precious memory and with them i felt at once at home and began the new life that everyone begins when the earth seems to have been suddenly transformed into some better or worse world and he alone survives the transformation have you never had such an experience then go into the midst of a community of lepers have ever before your eyes their gorgon-like faces see the horrors hardly to be recognized as human that grope about you listen in vain for the voices that have been hushed for ever by decay breathe the tainted atmosphere and bear ever in mind that while they hover about you forbidden to touch you yet longing to clasp once more a hand that is perfect and pure the insidious seeds of the malady may be generating in your vitals and your heart even then be drunk with death i might as well confess that i slept indifferently the first night that i was not entirely free from nervousness the next day as i passed through the various wards assigned to patients in every stage of decomposition but i recovered myself in time to observe the admirable system adopted by the hawaiian government for the protection of its unfortunate people i used to sit by the window and see the processions of the less afflicted come for little measures of milk morning and evening then there was a continuous raid upon the ointment pot with the contents of which they delighted to anoint themselves trifling disturbances sometimes brought the plaintiff and defendant to the front gate for a final judgment at the hands of their beloved keeper and it was a constant entertainment to watch the progress of events in that singular little world of doomed spirits they were not unhappy i used to hear them singing every evening their souls were singing while their bodies were falling rapidly to dust they continued to play their games as well as they could play them with the loss of a finger joint or a toe from week to week it is thus gradually and thus slowly that they died feeling their voices growing fainter and their strength less as the idle days passed over them and swept them to the tomb sitting at the window on the second evening as the patients came up for milk i observed one of them watching me intently and apparently trying to make me understand something or other but what that something was i could not guess 
he rushed to the keeper and talked excitedly with him for a moment and then withdrew to one side of the gate and waited till the others were served with their milk still watching me all the while then the keeper entered and told me how i had a friend out there who wished to speak with me someone who had seen me somewhere he supposed but whom i would hardly remember it was their way never to forget a face they had once become familiar with out i went there was a face i could not have recognized as anything friendly or human knots of flesh stood out upon it scar upon scar disfigured it the expression was like that of a mummy stony and withered the outlines of a youthful figure were preserved but the hands and feet were pitiful to look at what was this ogre that knew me and loved me still he soon told me who he once had been but was no longer our little unfortunate joe my lahaina charge in his case the disease had spread with fearful rapidity the keeper thought he could hardly survive the year many lingered year after year and cannot die but joe was more fortunate his life had been brief and passionate and death was now hastening him to his dissolution joe was forbidden to come near me so he crouched down by the fence and pressing his hands between the pickets sifted the dust at my feet while he wailed in a low voice and called me over and over dear friend good friend and master i wish i had never seen him so humbled to think of my disreputable little protege who was wont to lord it over me as though he had been a born chief to think of joe as being there in his extremity grovelling in the dust at my feet forbidden to climb the great wall of flowers that towered between him and his beautiful world while the rough sea lashed the coast about him and his only companions were such hideous foes as would frighten one out of a dream how i wanted to get close to him but i dared not so we sat there with the slats of the fence between us while we talked very long in the twilight and i was glad when it grew so dark that i could no longer see his face his terrible face that came to kill the memory of his former beauty and joe wondered whether i still remembered how we used to walk in the night and go home at last to our little house when lahaina was as still as death and you could almost hear the great stars throbbing in the clear sky how well i remembered it and the day when we went a long way down the beach and looking back saw a wide curve of the land cutting the sea like a sickle and turning up a white and shining swamp then in another place a grove of cocoa palms and a melancholy monastic-looking building with splendid palm branches in its broad windows for it was just after palm sunday and the building belonged to a sisterhood and i remembered how the clouds fell and the rain drove us into a sudden shelter and we ate tamarind jam spread thick on thin slices of bread and were supremely happy in this connection i could not forget how joe became very unruly about that time and i got mortified and found great difficulty in getting him home at all and yet the memory of it would have been perfect but for this fate oh joe my poor dear terrible cobra to think that i should ever be afraid to look into your face in my life joe wanted to call to my mind one other reminiscence a night when we two walked to the old wharf 
and went out to the end of it and sat there looking inland watching the inky waves slide up and down the beach while the full moon rose over the superb mountains where the clouds were heaped like wool and the very air seemed full of utterances that you could almost hear and understand but for something that made all a mystery i tried then if ever i tried in my life to make joe a little less bad than he was naturally and he seemed merely inclined to be better and would i think have been so but for the thousand temptations that gravitated to him when we got on solid earth again he forgot my precepts then and i'm afraid i forgot them myself joe remembered that night vividly i was touched to hear him confess it and i pray earnestly that that one moment may plead for him and the last day if indeed he needs any special plea other than that nature has published for her own sing for me joe said i and joe still crouching on the other side of the lattice sang some of his old songs one of them a popular melody was echoed through the little settlement where faint voices caught up the chorus and the night was wildly and weirdly musical we walked by the sea the next day and the day following that joe taking pains to stay on the leeward side of me he was so careful to keep the knowledge of his fate uppermost in his mind how could i dismiss it from my own when it was branded in his countenance the desolated beauty of his face pleaded for measureless pity and i gave it out of my prodigality yet felt that i could not begin to give sufficient link by link he was casting off his hold on life he was no longer a complete being his soul was prostrated in the miry clay and waited in agony its long deliverance in leaving the leper village i had concluded to say nothing to joe other than the usual aloha at night when i could ride off in the darkness and sleeping at the foot of the cliff ascend it in the first light of the morning and get well on my journey before the heat of the day we took a last walk by the rocks on the shore heard the sea breathing its long breath under the hollow cones of lava with a noise like a giant leper in his asthmatic agony joe heard it and laughed a little and then grew silent and finally said he wanted to leave the place he hated it he loved lahaina dearly how was everybody in lahaina a question he had asked me hourly since my arrival when night came i asked joe to sing as usual so he gathered his mates about him and they sang the songs i liked best the voices rang sweeter than ever up from the group of singers congregated a few rods off in the darkness and while they sang my horse was saddled and i quietly bade adieu to my dear friends the keepers and mounting walked the horse slowly up the grass-grown road i shall never see little joe again with his pitiful face growing gradually as dreadful as a cobra's and almost as fascinating in its hideousness i waited a little way off in the darkness waited and listened till the last song was ended and i knew he would be looking for me to say good-night but he didn't find me and he never will and he will never again find me in this life for i left him sitting in the dark door of his sepulchre sitting and singing in the mouth of his grave 
clothed all in death end of joe of lahaina by charles warren stoddard thomas jefferson to roger waitman monticello june twenty fourth eighteen twenty six this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. On the Library of Congress website, we find these lines in the introduction to Thomas Jefferson's last public letter, which relates to America's Fourth of July celebration, in which he eloquently espoused the central role of the United States and the Declaration of Independence as signals of the blessings of self-government to the world. Jefferson undoubtedly knew at his death on July 4, 1826, that the vagaries of life had left a vulnerable legacy. Thomas Jefferson to Roger Waitman, Monticello, June 24, 1826. Respected Sir, the kind invitation i received from you on the part of the citizens of the city of washington to be present with them at their celebration of the fiftieth anniversary of american independence as one of the surviving signers of an instrument pregnant with our own and the fate of the world is most flattering to myself and heightened by the honorable accompaniment proposed for the comfort of such a journey it adds sensibly to the sufferings of sickness to be deprived by it of a personal participation in the rejoicings of that day but acquiescence is a duty under circumstances not placed among those we are permitted to control i should indeed with peculiar delight have met and exchanged their congratulations personally with the small band the remnant of that host of worthies who joined with us on that day in the bold and doubtful election we were to make for our country between submission or the sword and to have enjoyed with them the consolatory fact that our fellow-citizens after half a century of experience and prosperity continue to approve the choice we made may it be to the world what i believe it will be to some parts sooner to others later but finally to all the signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bind themselves and to assume the blessings and security of self-government that form which we have substituted restores the free right to the unbounded exercise of reason and freedom of opinion all eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man the general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs nor a favored few booted and spurred ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of god these are grounds of hope for others for ourselves let the annual return of this day forever refresh our recollections of these rights and an undiminished devotion to them i will ask permission here to express the pleasure with which i should have met my ancient neighbors of the city of washington and of its vicinities 
with whom i passed so many years of a pleasing social intercourse an intercourse which so much relieved the anxieties of the public cares and left impressions so deeply engraved in my affections as never to be forgotten with my regret that ill health forbids me the gratification of an acceptance be pleased to receive for yourself and those for whom you write the assurance of my highest respect and friendly attachments thomas jefferson read for you by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana on the fourth of july two thousand seventeen makers of the flag june fourteenth nineteen fourteen by franklin k lane this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. makers of the flag this morning as i passed into the land office the flag dropped me a most cordial salutation and from its rippling folds i heard it say good morning mr flagmaker i beg your pardon old glory i said aren't you mistaken i am not the president of the united states nor a member of congress nor even a general in the army i am only a government clerk i greet you again mr flagmaker replied the gay voice i know you well you are the man who worked in the swelter of yesterday straightening out the tangle of that farmer's homestead in idaho or perhaps you found the mistake in that indian contract in oklahoma or helped to clear that patent for the hopeful inventor in new york or pushed the opening of that new ditch in colorado or made that mine in illinois more safe or brought relief to the old soldier in wyoming no matter whichever one of these beneficent individuals you may happen to be i give you greeting mr flagmaker i was about to pass on when the flag stopped me with these words yesterday the president spoke a word that made happier the future of ten million peons in mexico but that act looms no larger on the flag than the struggle which the boy in georgia is making to win the corn club prize this summer yesterday the congress spoke a word which will open the door of alaska but a mother in michigan worked from sunrise until far into the night to give her boy an education she too is making the flag yesterday we made a new law to prevent financial panics and yesterday maybe a school teacher in ohio taught his first letters to a boy who will one day write a song that will give cheer to the millions of our race we are all making the flag but i said impatiently these people were only working then came a great shout from the flag the work that we do is the making of the flag i am not the flag not at all i am but its shadow i am whatever you make me nothing more i am your belief in yourself your dream of what a people may become i live a changing life a life of moods and passions of heartbreaks and tired muscles sometimes i am strong with pride when men do an honest work fitting the rails together truly sometimes i droop for then the purpose has gone from me and cynically i play the coward sometimes i am loud garish and full of that ego that blasts judgment but always i am all that you hope to be and have courage to try for 
i am song and fear struggle and panic and ennobling hope i am the day's work of the weakest man and the largest dream of the most daring i am the constitution and the courts statutes and the statute makers soldier and dreadnought drayman and street sweep cook counsellor and clerk i am the battle of yesterday and the mistake of tomorrow i am the mystery of the men who do without knowing why i am the clutch of an idea and the reasoned purpose of resolution i am no more than what you believe me to be and i am all that you believe i can be i am what you make me nothing more i swing before your eyes as a bright gleam of color a symbol of yourself the pictured suggestion of that big thing which makes this nation my stars and my stripes are your dream and your labors they are bright with cheer brilliant with courage firm with faith because you have made them so out of your hearts for you are the makers of the flag and it is well that you glory in the making end of the makers of the flag by franklin k lane read by phil Schempf. Reminiscences of Margaret Fuller by Ralph Waldo Emerson from Memoirs of Margaret Fuller Osoli. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reminiscences of Margaret Fuller. She was an active, inspiring companion and correspondent and all the art the thought and the nobleness in new england seemed at that moment related to her and she to it she was everywhere a welcome guest the houses of her friends in town and country were open to her and every hospitable attention eagerly offered her arrival was a holiday and so was her abode she stayed a few days often a week more seldom a month and all tasks that could be suspended were put aside to catch the favorable hour in walking riding or boating to talk with this joyful guest who brought wit anecdotes love stories tragedies oracles with her and with her broad web of relations to so many fine friends seemed like the queen of some parliament of love who carried the key to all confidences and to whom every question had been finally referred persons were her game specially if marked by fortune or character or success to such was she sent she addressed them with a hardihood almost a haughty assurance queen-like indeed they fell in her way where the access might have seemed difficult by wonderful casualties and the inveterate recluse the coyest maid the waywardest poet made no resistance but yielded at discretion as if they had been waiting for her all doors to this imperious dame she disarmed the suspicion of recluse scholars by the absence of bookishness the ease with which she entered into conversation made them forget all they had heard of her and she was infinitely less interested in literature than in life they saw she valued earnest persons 
and dante petrarch and goethe because they thought as she did and gratified her with high portraits which she was everywhere seeking she drew her companions to surprising confessions she was the wedding guest to whom the long-pent story must be told and they were not less struck on reflection at the suddenness of the friendship which had established in one day new and permanent covenants she extorted the secret of life which cannot be told without setting heart and mind in a glow and thus had the best of those she saw whatever romance whatever virtue whatever impressive experience this came to her and she lived in a superior circle for they suppressed all their commonplace in her presence she was perfectly true to this confidence she never confounded relations but kept a hundred fine threads in her hand without crossing or entangling any an entire intimacy which seemed to make both sharers of the whole horizon of each other's and of all truth did not yet make her false to any other friend gave no title to the history that an equal trust of another friend had put in her keeping in this reticence was no prudery and no effort for so rich her mind that she never was tempted to treachery by the desire of entertaining the day was never long enough to exhaust her opulent memory and i who knew her intimately for ten years from july eighteen thirty six till august eighteen forty six when she sailed for europe never saw her without surprise at her new powers of the conversations above alluded to the substance was whatever was suggested by her passionate wish for equal companions to the end of making life altogether noble with the firmest tact she led the discourse into the midst of their daily living and working recognizing the good will and sincerity which each man has in his aims and treating so playfully and intellectually all the points that one seemed to see his life and bow and was flattered by beholding what he had found so tedious in his workday weeds shining in glorious costume each of his friends passed before him in the new light hope seemed to spring under his feet and life was worth living the auditor jumped for joy and thirsted for unlimited draughts what is this the dame who i heard was sneering and critical this the blue stocking of whom i stood in terror and dislike this wondrous woman full of counsel full of tenderness before whom every mean thing is ashamed and hides itself this new corinne more variously gifted wise supportive eloquent who seems to have learned all languages heaven knows when or how i should think she was born to them magnificent prophetic reading my life at her will and puzzling me with riddles like this yours is an example of a destiny springing from character and again i see your destiny hovering before you 
but it always escapes from you the test of this eloquence was its range it told on children and on old people on men of the world and on sainted maids she could hold them all by her honeyed tongue a lady of the best eminence whom margaret occasionally visited in one of our cities of spindles speaking one day of her neighbors said i stand in a certain awe of the moneyed men the manufacturers and so on knowing that they will have small interest in plato or in Biot. but i saw them approach margaret with perfect security for she could give them bread that they could eat some persons are thrown off their balance when in society others are thrown on to balance the excitement of company and the observation of other characters correct their biases margaret always appeared to unexpected advantage in conversation with a large circle she had more sanity than any other whilst in private her vision was often through coloured lenses her talents were so various and her conversation so rich and entertaining that one might talk with her many times by the parlour fire before he discovered the strength which served as foundation to so much accomplishment and eloquence but concealed under flowers and music was the broadest good sense very well able to dispose of all this pile of native and foreign ornaments and quite able to work without them she could always rally on this in every circumstance and in every company and find herself on a firm footing of equality with any party whatever and make herself useful and if need be formidable the old anaximenes seeking i suppose for a source sufficiently diffusive said that mind must be in the air which when all men breathed they were filled with one intelligence and when men have larger measures of reason as aesop cervantes franklin scott they gain in universality or are no longer confined to a few associates but are good company for all persons philosophers women men of fashion tradesmen and servants indeed an older philosopher than anaximenes namely language itself had taught to distinguish superior or purer sense as common sense margaret had with certain limitations or must we say strictures these larger lungs inhaling this universal element and could speak to jew and greek free and bond to each in his own tongue the concord stage coachman distinguished her by his respect and the chambermaid was pretty sure to confide to her on the second day her homely romance i regret that it is not in my power to give any true report of margaret's conversation she soon became an established friend and frequent inmate of our house and continued thenceforward for years to come once in three or four months to spend a week 
or a fortnight with us she adopted all the people and all the interests she found here your people shall be my people and yonder darling boy i shall cherish as my own her ready sympathies endeared her to my wife and my mother each of whom highly esteemed her good sense and sincerity she suited each and all yet she was not a person to be suspected of complacence and her attachments one might say were chemical she had so many tasks of her own that she was a very easy guest to entertain as she could be left to herself day after day without apology according to our usual habit we seldom met in the forenoon after dinner we read something together or walked or rode in the evening she came to the library and many and many a conversation was there held whose details if they could be preserved would justify all encomiums they interested me in every manner talent memory wit stern introspection poetic play religion the finest personal feeling the aspects of the future each followed each in full activity and left me i remember enriched and sometimes astonished by the gifts of my guest her topics were numerous but the cardinal points of poetry love and religion were never far off she was a student of art and though untravelled knew much better than most persons who had been abroad the conventional reputation of each of the masters she was familiar with all the field of elegant criticism in literature among the problems of the day these two attracted her chiefly mythology and demonology then also french socialism especially as it concerned woman the whole prolific family of reforms and of course the genius and career of each remarkable person she had other friends in this town beside those in my house a lady already alluded to lived in the village who had known her longer than i and whose prejudices margaret had resolutely fought down until she converted her into the firmest and most efficient of friends in eighteen forty two nathaniel hawthorne already then known to the world by his twice told tales came to live in concord in the old manse with his wife who was herself an artist with these welcomed persons margaret formed a strict and happy acquaintance she liked their old house and the taste which had filled it with new articles of beautiful form yet harmonized with the antique furniture left by the former proprietors she liked too the pleasing walks and rides and boatings which that neighborhood commanded in eighteen forty two william ellery channing whose wife was her sister built a house in concord and this circumstance made a new tie and another home for margaret arcana it was soon evident that there was somewhat a little pagan about her that she had some faith more or less distinct in a fate and in a guardian genius 
that her fancy or her pride had played with her religion she had a taste for gems ciphers talismans omens coincidences and birthdays she had a special love for the planet jupiter and a belief that the month of september was inauspicious to her she never forgot that her name margarita signified a pearl when i first met with the name lila she said i knew from the very look and sound it was mine i knew that it meant night night which brings out stars as sorrow brings out truths sortilege she valued she tried sortes biblica and her hits were memorable i think each new book which interested her she was disposed to put to this test and know if it had somewhat personal to say to her as happens to such persons these guesses were justified by the event she chose carbuncle for her own stone and when a dear friend was to give her a gem this was the one selected she valued what she had somewhere read that carbuncles are male and female the female casts out light the male has his within himself mine she said is the male and she was wont to put on her carbuncle a bracelet or some selected gem to write letters to certain friends one of her friends she coupled with the onyx another in a decided way with the amethyst she learned that the ancients esteemed this gem a talisman to dispel intoxication to give good thoughts and understanding the greek meaning is antidote against drunkenness she characterized her friends by these stones and wrote to the last mentioned the following lines to dash slow wandering on a tangled way to their lost child pure spirits say the diamond marshal thee by day by night the carbuncle defend heart's blood of a bosom friend on thy brow the amethyst violet of purest earth when by fullest sunlight kissed best reveals its regal birth and when that hallowed moment flies shall keep thee steadfast chaste and wise coincidences good and bad contretemps seals ciphers mottoes omens anniversaries names dreams are all of a certain importance to her her letters are often dated on some marked anniversary of her own or of her correspondent's calendar she signalized saints days all souls and all saints by poems which had for her a mystical value she remarked a pre-established harmony of the names of her personal friends as well as of her historical favorites that of emmanuel for swedenborg and rosencrantz for the head of the rosicrucians if christian rosencrantz she said is not a maid name the genius of the age interfered in the baptismal rite 
as in the cases of the archangels of art michael and raphael and in giving the name of emmanuel to the captain of the new jerusalem sub rosa crux i think is the true derivation and not the chemical one generation corruption etc in this spirit she soon surrounded herself with a little mythology of her own she had a series of anniversaries which she kept her seal-ring of the flying mercury had its legend she chose the system for her emblem and had it carefully drawn with a view to its being engraved on a gem and i know not how many verses and legends came recommended to her by this symbolism her dreams of course partook of this symmetry the same dream returns to her periodically annually and punctual to its night one dream she marks in her journal as repeated for the fourth time in c i at last distinctly recognized the figure of the early vision whom i found after i had left a who led me on the bridge towards the city glittering in sunset but midway the bridge went under water i have often seen in her face that it was she but refused to believe it she valued of course the significance of flowers and chose emblems for her friends from her garden to dash with heart's ease content in purple lustre clad kingly serene and golden glad no demi-hues of sad contrition no pallors of enforced submission give me such content as this and keep awhile the rosy bliss demonology this catching at straws of coincidence where all is geometrical seems the necessity of certain natures it is true that in every good work the particulars are right and that every spot of light on the ground under the trees is a perfect image of the sun yet for astronomical purposes an observatory is better than an orchard and in a universe which is nothing but generations or an unbroken suite of cause and effect to infer providence because a man happens to find a shilling on the pavement just when he wants one to spend is puerile and much as if each of us should date his letters and notes of hand from his own birthday instead of from christ's or the king's reign or the current congress these to be sure are also at first petty and private beginnings but by the world of men clothed with a social and comical character it will be seen however that this propensity margaret held with certain tenets of fate which always swayed her and which goethe who had found room and fine names for all this in his system had encouraged and i may add which her own experiences early and late seemed strangely to justify some extracts from her letters to different persons 
will show how this matter lay in her mind to ralph waldo emerson december twelfth eighteen forty three when goethe received a letter from zelter with a handsome superscription he said lay that aside it is zelter's true handwriting every man has a demon who is busy to confuse and limit his life no way is the action of this power more clearly shown than in the handwriting on this occasion the evil influences have been evaded the mood the hand the pen and paper have conspired to let our friend write truly himself you may perceive i quote from memory as the sentences are anything but gertian but i think often of this little passage with me for weeks and months the demon works his will nothing succeeds with me i fall ill or am otherwise interrupted at these times whether of frost or sultry weather i would gladly neither plant nor reap wait for the better times which sometimes come when i forget that sickness is ever possible when all interruptions are upborne like straws on the full stream of my life and the words that accompany it are as much in harmony as sedges murmuring near the bank not all yet not unlike but it often happens that something presents itself and must be done in the bad time nothing presents itself in the good so i like the others seem worse and poorer than i am in another letter to an earlier friend she expiates a little as to the demonical i know not that i can say to you anything more precise than you find from goethe there are no precise terms for such thoughts the word instinctive indicates their existence i intimated it in the little piece on the drachenfels it may be best understood perhaps by a symbol as the sun shines from the serene heavens dispelling noxious exhalations and calling forth exquisite thoughts on the surface of earth in the shape of shrub or flower so gnome-like works the fire within the hidden caverns and secret veins of earth fashioning existences which have a longer share in time perhaps because they are not immortal in thought love beauty wisdom goodness are intelligent but this power moves only to seize its prey it is not necessarily either malignant or the reverse but it has no scope beyond demonstrating its existence when conscious self-asserting it becomes as power working for its own sake unwilling to acknowledge love for its superior must the devil that is the legend of lucifer the star that would not own its centre yet while it is unconscious it is not devilish only demonic in nature we trace it in all volcanic workings in a boding position of lights in whispers of the wind which has no pedigree in deceitful invitations of the water in the sullen rock which never shall find a voice 
and in the shapes of all those beings who go about seeking what they may devour we speak of a mystery a dread we shudder but we approach still nearer and a part of our nature listens sometimes answers to this influence which if not indestructible is at least indissolubly linked with the existence of matter in genius and in character it works as you say instinctively it refuses to be analyzed by the understanding and is most of all inaccessible to the person who possesses it we can only say i have it he has it you have seen it often in the eyes of those italian faces you like it is most obvious in the eye as we look on such eyes we think on the tiger the serpent beings who lurk glide fascinate mysteriously control for it is occult by its nature and if it could meet you on the highway and be familiarly known as an acquaintance could not exist the angels of light do not love yet they do not insist on exterminating it it has given rise to the fables of wizard enchantress and the like these beings are scarcely good yet not necessarily bad power tempts them they draw their skills from the dead because their being is coeval with that of matter and matter is the mother of death in later days she allowed herself sometimes to dwell sadly on the resistances which she called her fate and remarked that all life that has been or could be natural to me is invariably denied she wrote long afterwards my days at milan were not unmarked i have known some happy hours but they all led to sorrow and not only the cups of wine but of milk seemed drugged with poison for me it does not seem to be my fault this destiny i do not court these things they come i am a poor magnet with power to be wounded by the bodies i attract temperament i said that margaret had a broad good sense which brought her near to all people i am to say that she had also a strong temperament which is that counter-force which makes individuality by driving all the powers in the direction of the ruling thought or feeling and when it is allowed full sway isolating them these two tendencies were always invading each other and now one and now the other carried the day this alternation perplexes the biographer as it did the observer we contradict on the second page what we affirm on the first and i remember how often i was compelled to correct my impressions of her character when living for after i had settled it once for all that she wanted this or that perception at our next interview she would say with emphasis the very word i think in her case there was something abnormal in those obscure habits and necessities which we denote by the word temperament in the first days of our acquaintance i felt her to be a foreigner 
that with her one would always be sensible of some barrier as if in making up a friendship with a cultivated spaniard or turk she had a strong constitution and of course its reactions were strong and this is the reason why in all her life she has so much to say of her fate she was in jubilant spirits in the morning and ended the day with nervous headache whose spasms my wife told me produced total prostration she had great energy of speech and action and seemed formed for high emergencies her life concentrated itself on certain happy days happy hours happy moments the rest was a void she had read that a man of letters must lose many days to work well in one much more must a sappho or a sibyl the capacity of pleasure was balanced by the capacity of pain if i had whist she writes i am a worse self-tormentor than rousseau and all my riches are fuel to the fire my beautiful lore like the tropic clime hatches scorpions to sting me there is a verse which annie of lochroyan sings about her ring that torments my memory tis so true of myself when i found she lived at a rate so much faster than mine and which was violent compared with mine i foreboded rash and painful crises and had a feeling as if a voice cried stand from under as if a little further on this destiny was threatened with jars and reverses which no friendship could avert or console this feeling partly wore off on better acquaintance but remained latent and i had always an impression that her energy was too much a force of blood and therefore never felt the security for her peace which belongs to more purely intellectual natures she seemed more vulnerable for the same reason she remained inscrutable to me her strength was not my strength her powers were a surprise she passed into new states of great advance but i understood these no better it were long to tell her peculiarities her childhood was full of presentiments she was then a somnambulist she was subject to attacks of delirium and later perceived that she had spectral illusions when she was twelve she had a determination of blood to the head my parents she said were much mortified to see the fineness of my complexion destroyed my own vanity was for a time severely wounded but i recovered and made up my mind to be bright and ugly she was all her lifetime the victim of disease and pain she read and wrote in bed and believed that she could understand anything better when she was ill pain acted like a girdle to give tension to her powers a lady who was with her one day during a terrible attack of nervous headache which made margaret totally helpless assured me that margaret was yet in the finest vein of humour and kept those who were assisting her 
in a strange painful excitement between laughing and crying by perpetual brilliant sallies there were other peculiarities of habit and power when she turned her head on one side she alleged she had second sight like st francis these traits or predispositions made her a willing listener to all the uncertain science of mesmerism and its goblin brood which had been rife in recent years she had a feeling that she ought to have been a man and said of herself a man's ambition with a woman's heart is an evil lot in some verses which she wrote to the moon occur these lines but if i steadfast gaze upon thy face a human secret like my own i trace for through the woman's smile looks the male eye and she found something of true portraiture in a disagreeable novel of balzac's le livre mystique in which an equivocal figure exerts alternately a masculine and a feminine influence on the characters of the plot end of reminiscences of margaret fuller by ralph waldo emerson read for librivox by sue anderson that where the invisible is seen the uncreated is created from the vision of god by nicholas of cusa fourteen hundred and one to fourteen hundred and sixty four this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org crown of my joy and happiness thou hast appeared unto me sometimes as invisible from every creature because thou art a god secret and hidden and infinite and infinite is incomprehensible by any manner of comprehension then thou appearest to me as visible to all things for everything is so far forth as thou seest it and that could not be in act except it did see thee for vision gives being because it is thy essence so thou my god art visible and invisible thou art invisible as thou art and thou art visible as the creature is which so far forth is as it sees thee by everything that sees in everything that may be seen and in every act of seeing art thou seen which art invisible and absolute and free from all such things and infinitely superexalted therefore o lord i must leap over the wall of invisible vision where thou art found and the wall is all things and nothing both together and thou which meetest or appearest to us as though thou wert all things and nothing at all both together dwelleth within that high wall which no wit can by its own power ever be able to climb sometimes thou appearest unto me so that i imagine thou seest all things in thyself like a living glass in which all things shine 
and because thy seeing is thy knowing then it comes into my mind that thou dost not see also things in thyself as in a living glass for then thy knowledge shouldst arise from the things sometimes thou presenteth thyself to me that thou seest all things in thyself as power or virtue by looking upon itself as the power or possibility of the seed of a tree if it should look into and behold itself would in itself see the tree in power because the virtue of the seed is potentially the tree and then again methinkest that thou dost not see thyself and all things in thyself as power or possibility for to see a tree in the power of the virtue differs from that vision by which the tree is seen in act and then i find how thy infinite virtue or power is beyond all specular and seminal virtue and beyond the coincidence radiation or reflection of the cause and also the thing caused and that that absolute virtue is absolute vision which is perfection itself above all manner of seeing for all the manners which explain the perfection of seeing are without any manners thy vision which is thy essence o my god but suffer most merciful lord that i thy wild creature may yet speak unto thee if thy seeing be thy creating and thou seest nothing but thyself but thyself art the object of thyself for thou art both the thing seeing and the things seeing and the act of seeing how then dost thou create other things from thee for thou seest to create thyself as thou seest thyself but thou comfortest me o life of my spirit for although i meet with the wall of absurdity which is of the coincidence of creating and being created as though it were impossible that creating and being created should coincide for to admit this seemest to be as if thou should affirm that a thing is before it is for when it creates it is and because it is created it is not yet it hinders not for thy creating is thy being neither is it any other thing at once to create and to be created than to communicate thy being unto all things that thou mayest be all things in all things and yet remain absolute from all things for to call to being things that are not is to communicate being to nothing so to call is to create to communicate is to be created and beyond this coincidence of creating and being created art thou god absolute and innate neither creating nor impossibility of being created although they are all that they are because thou art o thou heights of riches how incomprehensible thou art as long as i conceive a creator creating i am yet on this side the wall of paradise 
so as long as i conceive a creator in possibility of being created i have not entered but am in the wall but when i see thee as absolute infinite whereunto neither the name of a creator creating nor of a creator in possibility of being created can agree then i begin to see thee revealedly and to enter into the garden of delights because thou art no such thing as can be said or conceived but infinitely and absolutely superexalted above all such things thou art not therefore only a creator but infinitely more than a creator though without thee nothing is done or can be done to thee be praise and glory for ever and ever amen end of that where the invisible is seen the uncreated is created from the vision of god by nicholas of cusa fourteen o one to fourteen sixty four unprofessional forestry by austin carey this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. it ought to be a source of satisfaction to foresters when they find the work they have at heart going on outside the range of their knowledge and immediate assistance when simple business interest dictates careful and conservative management on the part of forest owners and this fact is clearly recognised then indeed the cause is won just when the measures that embody it shall be and just who are the best men to carry it into effect are matters that may be safely left for settlement by trial and time the canadian maritime provinces afford many examples of such unprofessional forestry in that region are numerous forest properties that have been cut over for many years and yet retain their growing power and value a moist climate and a law-abiding population have secured considerable exemption from fire logging methods conservative of the forest have been employed the temper of the owners has not been such as to force timber ruthlessly on the market as a general thing only trees of good size have been cut an amount of lumber frequently within the power of the lands to produce that this policy has been a good one for all concerned would seem indisputable the people and operators have done well and the lands in spite of fifty years of cutting are more valuable at the present time than ever before some of these properties are handled today as nearly according to the principles of true forestry as is practicable an illustration of such methods was encountered by the senior class in forestry at harvard university on its trip among the lumber camps last winter the hollingsworth and whitney company of boston whose mills are at waterville maine is one of the largest paper manufacturing establishments of new england this company some ten years ago began a policy of land purchase which it has consistently carried on until at the present time it owns a hundred thousand acres of spruce land on the kennebee river 
This land they have operated carefully, intending to make it a permanent source of raw material for their mills. They tried logging by contract at first, but finding that the work was not done to suit them, bought teams and developed an organisation of their own. This organisation is fairly started now, and while methods of work are not yet perfected as they will be, enough has been done to demonstrate the intention of the company and to furnish considerable insight into the best methods of controlling such work. The principle of conservative cutting was adopted at the start and is exemplified by the high size limit adopted as a general rule for cutting, namely 12 inches in diameter, breast height. Next, the company early determined to mark the timber for cutting. This presents no obstacles in the way of cost. Two or three cents per metre will cover that. But it does take determination on the part of the company, and it does mean thoroughgoing superintendence on the part of its responsible representatives to make logging bosses and choppers adhere to it. That it can be done, however, the experience of this company proves, and, as is so often the case with reforms of this kind, carried out in the face of strong opposition, former objectors, since they have got used to the new method, rather like it than otherwise. The company's lands, to be sure, were of such character as to lend themselves to conservative cutting. It may, therefore, be safely said that, as far as the work has gone, a favourable result has been reached. Economy in the utilisation of the timber cut was, of course, the first thing looked after in the work of such a practical business-like men. Saws are used instead of the axe in cutting down and cutting off. All dead and down stuff in the territory cut over that remains sound is picked up as a matter of course. Logs are run up into the tops of trees as far as the wood can be used in the mill. Stumps are cut low enough to put to shame the standard of some much lauded examples of forestry elsewhere. A little trick used to secure economy in the latter direction is well worth noting. The trees to be cut are marked not on the trunk but at the base, at a height just above that at which the stump should be cut. The choppers then are required to take the spot off with the log, a very simple and conclusive evidence of good work. It would be strange if in the course of only three or four years, a large organisation doing work of this nature should have come to a state of efficiency which could be desired, or which with time and effort will be attained. Habitually, in Kennebee, logging two horses and a sled four feet wide for yarding purposes are employed. A type of rig which necessitates a wide road and a good deal of destruction of small trees. Much of the country and timber of H&W Co appears to be adapted to the Adirondack method of yarding with a single horse, trailing or snaking one or two logs directly on the ground. The company is aware of the saving of growth by the latter method, and as soon as it can be done under favourable conditions will give it a thorough trial. The final decision between the two will depend on ratio of saving to expense. Another point in which the work of the company may be criticised with a show of reason is that its method of cutting is too rigidly uniform. It does not allow sufficient variation to meet the needs of the case. 
The territory is in general well adapted to conservative cutting, but there are directions in which the present system does not meet the full requirements of the case. A good deal of fur below size limits standing on the ground will surely go to waste if it is left for the next cutting. Then there are places where the land had better be cut clean, and other places where scattering of trees merchantable size had better be left to stand, either on account of expense or for the sake of young growth around them. The present practice of the company is perhaps best for the present, all things considered, but there can be no doubt that in the near future it should be changed. Possibly such change will require the better class of men shall do the marking than those now employed, though the points involved are neither many nor different. Lastly, there is the matter of destroying small growth in felling trees, in swamping roads and similar operations. Change in the yarding method would do much to relieve that, but outside of this measure, reform is difficult matter involving training of the woodsmen and, if possible, more permanency in the woods force. How much can be done in this direction is uncertain. The statements above cover the main points involved in the system of conservative cutting, but there is one other achievement of the H&W Company which is well worthy of note. Like every other man and corporation doing business on the main rivers, though not all like them have been aware of the fact, they have been sufferers from the peculiarities of construction and from the tricks in manipulation of the common board rule. With the business in their own hands, from the stump to the mill, they did not have to remain subservient to the custom of the region in which they operated. They have in fact gone back to first principles and devised a rule of their own which gives the actual contents of the logs in cubic feet from measured length and middle diameter. A measure like that, discounted for bark, as careful studies have shown them should be done, gives exactly the information about its logs the company requires when they are to be used in pulp and paper manufacture. A few general reflections, which seem to be worthy of note, are suggested in this connection. The first is that work of just the nature here outlined is under the circumstances of the case, real forestry. That admitted, it is instructed for one thing to note what kind of men have been instrumental in bringing success about. William Lanigan, the head of the land business of the company, is an old Kennebe lumberman and log driver, one of those forcible and clear-headed men, without much schooling, so common in all lines of American business. For a woodman, he is more than ordinary thoughtfulness and hospitality to new ideas. His time is spent mainly outside the woods directing logging operations, only in a large way, keeping in touch with the business both inside and outside his own concern. He is the man who devised the system of mountain watch stations, connected by telephone with the wardens below, which proved so efficient in preventing forest fires on the upper Kennebee last year. Under him come the walking bosses, so-called, men who have general charge of a section of the company's wood operations. Lewis Oakes, who has charge of the eight or ten camps east of Moosehead Lake, is a land surveyor by training, who has been familiar with timber and logging since boyhood, and, while he may never have chopped or run a camp himself, 
he knows perfectly well how it ought to be done. He looks out the location of the camps and main roads in summer and, after logging begins, he sees to it that the camps are stocked with tools, supplies and men, giving advice, settling disputes and in general keeping things in a smooth running order. Camp foremen are an important item in this organisation. These men are of the usual type and training, though a sifting process is constantly going on for the best and most efficient. The workmen, too, are like those found in other corners of the region, many of them French Canadians. Nothing perhaps to secure the best work either need or can be done with them except to organise and watch their work and use them liberally in the matters of food, quarters and pay. The marking is done by bright young woodsmen who are paid about the wages of a cook or foreman. One man in the course of three months in the fall will mark all the timber that two or three camps will cut all winter. Here, if anywhere, in the matters of marking and inspection of logging work, is the weak place in the company system. The work of the Hollingworth and Whitney Co. is believed by the writer to come very close to securing true forestry, as near certainly as any logging work carried on in the spruce woods of New England, and yet it is seen that in the company's organisation there is no man of technical forestry training, no man who even calls himself a forester. That suggests to the mind of the writer that perhaps we who assume the professional name may, in our enthusiasm and eagerness, have valued our own usefulness and efficiency too highly. While we have been theorising about forest management and drawing up plans which may or may not have some effect on the lands to which they are applied, other men in their own territory have been going ahead without advertisement or parade, actually securing the real thing. The idea is worth pondering, and the question that follows it, whether it is not they rather than we who are the real foresters of this country. The writer believes that there is much truth in this suggestion, yet further reflection will show that neither forestry educators nor technically trained men need depreciate their services in the past, nor feel discouragement over future prospects. It is true in the first place that any attempt at conservative lumbering, such as for instance as that described, is not altogether self-developed or self-maintained. In a measure, the way in which they have gone to work, and in still greater degree the fundamental attitude of the Hollingsworth and Whitney Co. towards the timberland tributary to their mills are very largely the fruit of literature, with which the country for the last 20 years has been thickly sown. Business permanence as dependence on the woods, the forest as a field, not a mine, the time element in the production of timber crops, the essential value of reproduction, the achievements of forestry in Europe. These ideas, propagated through forestry literature, are behind every attempt at better forest management today, and nothing has been or is more necessary than their propagation. In regard to future management and the school-trained man, there is just one thing to be said, but that is full of meaning and cuts in a multitude of ways. It is that when technically trained men can do the work required better than those who are now conducting it, they will get it to do. End of Unprofessional Forestry by Austin Carey Read by Melanie T